Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today I am talking to the one and only Tim Fung. He's the CEO and co-founder of Airtasker, the Australian founder company that provides an online and mobile marketplace enabling users to outsource their everyday tasks, whether it be cleaning your house, furniture assembly, house repairs, and even helping with your resume. Founded in 2012, just when the gig economy was taking off with the likes of Uber and DoorDash, Tim was able to jump on that rocket ship and has since been instrumental in building his company from literally his apartment to a now publicly listed company as of March 2021. And they're just getting started. In our conversation, you will hear about Tim's journey from the suburbs to launching his company, the ups and downs of being CEO, and how others can follow in his footsteps as well. I hope you learn as much as I did and be inspired by his incredible founder story. Finally, if you really like these conversations with these amazing people, please like, subscribe, and share these episodes. It really does help and grow the channel and community. So with that, let's get started, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Tim Fung. Tim, thanks for uh, joining the episode. I really appreciate you coming on. Barry, thanks for having me. Look, Tim, I, I think you know I've uh, I've tried to wanted to get you on the episode for quite some time, and you know I think Airtasker is one of those companies that are doing interesting things, and I think I want to sort of get into it a little bit more. Um, but uh, for those who are sort of new to sort of what you guys are up to. Um, maybe you want to give a, a quick spiel on what uh, Airtasker does and, and we'll get it from there. Sure. So uh, Airtasker is um, a, a marketplace uh, for local services. Um, our mission at Airtasker is to empower people to realize the full value of their skills. So uh, we're, we are looking um, at ourselves, primarily looking at the supply side of the marketplace, our taskers. Um, and looking at ways that we can uh, take those skills and help people um, to monetize uh, those skills. Um, so in terms of the, the product um, and what Airtask is, our vision is to become the most trusted place to buy and sell local services. Uh, we do that primarily through, um, uh, through our initial uh, model, uh, which we call the open marketplace model, which is where you post a task. Um, you can post any kind of service problem that you need uh, solved. Um, our taskers will make offers uh, against your uh, against your task, and you pick a tasker and 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 move through the process and buy services that way. Uh, we've also uh, developed a new marketplace model called listings, which is sort of the reverse of that. Where now we're enabling taskers to be able to package up uh, services that they um, that they offer, um, and um, and be able to um, uh, put them on the shelves of the air tasker store. Um, and so that's um, creating the opposite uh, model now where customers can also browse and sort of discover uh, new things to, to buy as well. It's interesting, you know, the idea of Airtasker because you started this in sort of 2012 uh, timeframe and that was a time where sort of the gig economy was sort of taking off because you had sort of the likes of DoorDash and Uber um, sort of exploding and no one really anticipated those sort of companies to really do super well. And and I wanted to sort of understand from Airtasker's point of view, when you were sort of coming up with this idea first, I guess the, the question is, in terms of inception and, and sort of how this came to you, was it sort of something that you've been thinking about for a while? Or was it something that just happened, sport of the moment, you were doing something, you know, at home or out and about, and then all of a sudden you had a bit of epiphany. How, that, how did that come about? Yeah, so first of all, it's worthwhile, you know, you called out like Uber and DoorDash and companies like that. So I think um, it's worthwhile calling out like the differences between a platform like um, Airtasker, a marketplace like Airtasker and a platform like um, uh, Uber or, or the, you know, uh, the ride sharing and food delivery apps. And I think that main difference is that um, on ride sharing and food delivery apps, it's primarily the platform that is determining what kind of work that you're going to do, you know, deliveries. 
um, and also the price that you're going to get paid for those deliveries. Like it's it's really a the um, the service provider can really choose to either turn on the app or turn off the app. Like that's the, the amount of um, uh, input that they have into that model. Um, what Airtasker is doing is quite different to that. Um, on Airtasker, it's actually that we support the taskers to be able to monetize their skills. And they are the ones that are determined the scope of work they're going to do, i.e. they're either quoting for a job and saying, this is what I'm going to do for this amount of money. Um, and secondly, they determine the price that they're going to get paid for doing uh, that work. And so there's quite a different level of like input from the users, I guess, on a in a marketplace like Airtasker versus something like a food delivery or, or a ride sharing app. So I wanted to sort of like call that difference out because I think it sounds small, but actually it's quite large. And actually right. the only main thing that I, I would say that we have in common with something like an Uber or a DoorDash is really that, you know, you access this labor via an app. Um, that's probably actually where most of the differences end because in terms of the actual services that are provided on Airtasker and the way they're provided and the pricing, um, that, that happens in quite a different uh, mechanism in a marketplace like Airtasker. Um, in terms of um, the genesis of, of the company, so we started back, uh, we had the idea for Airtasker in 2011 um, and it came about because I was just moving apartments and I asked a friend to help me move. And, um, you know, this just made us think, it's like, why do we ask friends and family to do all these kinds of jobs when there's so many people out there who would love to be making an income from, from doing this kind of work? And yet you ask people who don't have time for this stuff. It just seemed like a massive mismatch there. And so that's where we, we, we started with. And we designed Airtask as an open platform. So, you know, we sort of like broadened that idea that it wasn't just about like helping someone move an apartment. It could be it could be anything that you just need help with. And so um, we went along that journey for a couple of years. And then we started like meeting, like, you know, doing user research and meeting with the taskers, the people who are actually doing the jobs on our, on our platform. And um, it became really clear to us that like the impact that we were having on these people was even more profound than the impact that we were having on the people buying the services. Like people would tell us, you know, I used to work on set, I used to, you know, collect welfare and, and be a, Centrelink. And now through Airtasker, I'm able to get off Centrelink and be able to, um, you know, um, earn my own income and, and build my own confidence and start my own career. Uh, or people would tell us that, you know, um, they, they were in a situation in which they may have been made redundant from a job and they couldn't pay their rent. And so they were using Airtasker to be able to pay their rent. And so this made us really think because at the same time, um, you know, um, there was a lot of talk from the um, from the transport apps that um, they were kind of like, hey, if we can automate the cars, of course we just get rid of the drivers. Like, you know, like that 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 was obvious, and and that made us really sit back and reflect on like, you know, what are we here to actually do? And and um, and when we reflected on that, we we're like, if somebody was to automate cleaning and make like, you know, one of a, a common service on Airtasker you know, to, to robotize that, what would we do? And um, we thought about that is we would be very happy for that because like automation is a great thing, but we wouldn't um, get into automation. We would um, look for other ways that we can help that person make more money from their skills. And so um, that really sort of set the tone for how we, we built the marketplace out since then, which is very much like starting with the taskers and skills that our service providers have and then thinking like, how do we help them realize that? How do we help them monetize um, the skills that they have? Yeah, it's it. You know, it sounds like what you're doing is giving everyone an opportunity, right? So you're really giving them the ability to really express themselves in the best way that they can by giving them the opportunity to do work and do do paid work for you know for certain things that other people need be need to be done. And it's it's an interesting way to sort of approach this because prior to Airtasker, I don't think there was maybe any significant marketplace like that. You know, it was sort of a, a buyer and seller market. You would just go to, you know, these established, um, you know, companies or small businesses and they'd be able to provide those services to you. But now you've really, I guess, democratized a lot of that so that anyone can sort of really come in and, you know, sign up and, you know, say, hey, I'm, I'm qualified to do this. 
um, you know, go ahead and hire me, and I'm I'm happy to to accept whatever offer comes my way. You know, did that? Well, I guess the next question is in terms of reception. Did you find that um, in Australia specifically uh, there was a lot of people gravitating towards that? Because I can see that this idea of of things needing to get done um, and sort of outsourcing to this to other people is more is more of a global thing. And you know, obviously, Australia is where it started, but I would imagine that whether you bring this to you know, the US or Europe, you know, there's definitely, uh, you know, a need for this type of service out there. Yeah, well, I guess maybe, um, uh, again, I'll start with sort of like a distinction between like, you know, the offshoring uh, platforms. Like if you look at something like uh, freelancer.com mm-hmm. or, or Fiverr or something like that. Um, again, like Airtas is like quite different to that in the sense that I think um, one of the primary propositions of those platforms would be um, would be price. You know, the difference in um, uh, the cost of labor in, say, you know, in certain countries versus others. And, you know, that's a, a clear part of the value proposition, which, which is awesome. I think it creates opportunity for people in, um, in, in certain countries and, and, and creates opportunity as well for people to, um, to offshore things that can be done efficiently um, elsewhere around the world, which is awesome. Um, that is quite different, though, to what Airtasker does, which is we're all about um, local uh, services. Um, that doesn't, um, you know, I always have this debate internally as well, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all face-to-face services, but it is about local services. Like in each market um, that, that we're in, um, you know, it's about connecting with someone um, uh, to, to do a job for you, either person or where there's, um, you know, some sort of like local aspect to it, for example, like, um, you know, an architect or an accountant or, or something like that, where, mm-hmm. you know, um, if you're in the US, you'd want to have a US-based accountant. Um, if you're in Australia, you want to have a US, uh, Australian-based accountant. Um, so that's sort of the, the distinction. Um, um, second thing I would say is like Airtasker and, and um, what we're doing is very much uh, under the premise that every single person has unique skills. There's all of these skills out there. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because we we often look at certain skills as being like official skills, you know, and other people as being unskilled. Um, and the way that we actually look at it, their task is like, no, all of those things are skills. Like if you are better at doing something than somebody else, then there's an opportunity for you to be able to do that for them and to add value doing that. And even if that thing may not be like um, generally recognized, it's definitely true. Um, so I can, I can, Tell a bit of an anecdote. This is that you know early on when we were designing the Airtasker office, well, it wasn't really designing, but we were putting together the Airtasker office in the early days. I was um, putting together these IKEA stools, and um, you know it would take me like fifteen minutes with the with the pre um, with the prepackaged uh, Allen key to put these stools together, and I had to put together like fifteen of these stools, and so I was like, oh my gosh, this is gonna like take me ages. So I was like, you know, this is probably three, four hours work. And so I posted it on Airtasker and I said, hey, someone come and assemble these stools. And I put it up for $120 because I was like, you know, three, three, four hours at 30 bucks an hour, it's probably $120. Person comes along, they turn up with like a pocket drill, Stanley knife, and like clearly they knew what they were doing. Like when they opened up all the boxes, they just created an assembly line. You know, first do all the unboxing, put them all down line up all the screws and then just bang, 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 put it all together. And they got that done in like 40 minutes. And so I was kind of like, oh, so that person actually earned like $180 for like, you know, (laughs) per hour uh, during that time. But yet it would have taken me three, four hours to do this job. And so when I think about that, it's like maybe IKEA furniture assembly is not considered a skill, uh, you know, a formal skill. But, you know, the way we see it is that is definitely a skill. And um, so just coming back to that, that question about, um, you know, that, that, that thesis for our task is we think there's like these skills that are out there everywhere, but like there's just no way for you to access them or connect with them. And so it's quite similar to, you know, like what Airbnb is doing or what, um, you know, Car Next Door, like a car sharing website is doing. Um, it's actually like flipping it the other way, which is to think there's all these skills out there everywhere how do we make the most of that asset that exists in our community? 
Um, and that is what Airtasker is doing. And that's why we really think about it starting from our service providers and our taskers rather than thinking about it, you know, uh, from the other side of the market. Super interesting. I want to sort of take take Airtasker back to sort of its early days and sort of understand your journey from there because I think it's interesting to for the audience to hear not just how, about Airtasker but just how any company sort of begins. Everyone has their own roots. And for you, I, you had a co-founder. Um, did you did you meet? Um, did you know each other beforehand? What was the relationship between you and your co-founder in, in sort of getting Airtasker off the ground? Yeah, so maybe a good place to start would be yeah, so I'll, I'll go. I'll take a few steps back. So I um, I studied marketing in uni, and then mm-hmm. came out and did investment banking for about five years, and you know got my head beat in as like a um, you know um, an analyst, you know, doing um, right. lots of modeling and things like that, which was a great training uh, ground. I then moved to a um, a fashion modeling agency called Chic Management, which looks after Victoria's Secret models and things like that. Um, and that was a little bit of like a creative segue um, in my career, but it gave me the opportunity to meet um, one of the co-founders of that agency, um, a, a person called Peter O'Connell, um, and he was one of the founding directors of Optus. So he had, um, which is the second biggest um, telco in Australia for, for those not in Australia. So um, he gave me the opportunity to work with him on a startup, doing a um, a low-cost mobile virtual network operator. Um, uh, business and we started this out the back of the modeling agency and um, and I remember then you know um, we had a we had a group of uh, founders of, of managing directors uh, in the business and one of them said hey we really need to get someone who's a, a project manager and understands like telco which is what we were in and um, I literally had a friend from uni uh, who did a degree in um, in uh, telecommunications engineering and was a project manager um, working at IBM at the time. And so it's like, oh, I think I know someone who's perfect for that for that role. And so um, I called up my uni mate, um, which is which is Jono, and said, hey, come and join a Mason. And he was like, all right. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was a real great chance to go on a startup journey. Um, and so, you know, I was the, um, the first employee of this startup and Jono was the second. Um, a couple of um, you know years after we launched um, Amazim, which is the the name of the business that we launched, um, it started to become like you know we scaled it up really quickly. We raised a bunch of money and hired about two hundred people in a very short period of time. But then John and I started getting a bit kind of like you know itchy feet. I guess is that the right? Uh, I'm not sure if that's the right terminology, but um, and you know we were just like looking around at ideas and so. Um, when I was moving apartments um, and, you know, my, my mate Ivan, um, you know, did that moving, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I came and told John about this, like on a Monday morning, um, you know, having our coffee in the kitchen. And, um, and that's sort of where the genesis of the, um, you know, of our partnership came about uh, from there. So, you know, we were friends in uni, then we worked together on Amazim and had that experience together and then, um, and then Airtasker. So it was a great um you know, it was a great formation of a partnership. We didn't sort of just meet, um, you know, as we were doing Airtasker. It's quite some time before that. How how important is that relationship with your co-founder? I think, you know, nowadays everyone wants to start a company, which is great, and everyone, you know, either can do it solo. But those who are solo but are looking for a co-founder, they are somewhat desperate. They just want to find someone um, to sort of do the job, but from your experience, you know, how can, in terms of that relationship that you had with Jono, you know, those formative years for you, you know, would you have went with someone that you just knew for, you know, for a short while? Or do you think that finding a co-founder, you know, means that, you know, it's a long-term bond that you really need to to have and know someone for quite some time before you sort of become partners? Yeah, I think it's a really good... um it's a it's a good um, question. I would say that you know if you look at the the problem that you're trying to solve is that you know you're going to be working with someone very closely um, and you're going to be uh, you know you're going to have to have a lot of trust in each other. And I think that um, and I think that that trust can be built though in many different 
uh, ways. Um, you know, that, that could be because, you know, you've got um, a lot of years working together or your friends uh, before that, but that can definitely have downsides too. You know, um, it can be pretty, it can be pretty like scarring doing a, a startup, you know, like um, it, it, it's full on. And so I think, um, you know, that that's one possible way you can solve trust, you know, um, working with friends, but, you know, comes with downsides. I think it could also be that you've got a great professional relationship or that, you know, you've really got respect for each other's craft and the way that you think about stuff. So I don't think there's any like one answer to how you find a co-founder or like what's the best solution or whether you need a co-founder or whether it should be one person, two people, three or four uh, in a team. I think you do have to let that happen organically. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's all about just finding people that you can trust. And, and that's not a, that's typically not an easy thing to, to find someone who's on the same sort of wavelength as you. I think one other thing that I would um, sort of call out is like having the courage to um, talk about some of the, um, the hairier topics up front. Um, and, you know, the classic one is like, who's going to be the CEO, um, I think. And, you know, I'm of a, like, I think that, you know, there's always exceptions to every rule. So you don't want to like create rules and things that, um, that, that, you know, that apply to everything. There's obviously exceptions. But generally speaking, I think it's good to um, to define some of those things up front. Who's going to be the CEO? Who's going to be the one person that all of the stuff uh, trickles down to eventually? Um, and, you know, how's equity going to work? How, how are you going to think about compensation? Uh, how are you going to think about reporting lines and things like that? I think it's worthwhile having some of those conversations early. Um, and really, I think that's kind of like a signal of the people that you can trust to. You know, if, if there's somebody that you have the confidence, you can have that open conversation with them, then, you know, that's a pretty good signal that you can, you know, have a build a trusted relationship with that person. If you kind of think in your head, oh, no, I think that's going to be too hard or I'm nervous about what they might say if I mention, you know, this or that, I think that's probably a recipe for, you know, you're kicking the can down the road and you're going to have some bigger problems to clean up later on, which is, you know... Um, isn't always the wrong thing to do, but, you know, can make your life harder down the line. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And what really struck me is those honest conversations, right? Because, you know, I think you really need to, and it's like a relationship, you know, you have to be open and you need to understand that you might not get the answer you want, but at least you're discussing it now. And if there are problems, then, you know, it's important to deal with them now before, you know, stuff like that sort of trickles down and you're already, you know, a hundred person company and, you know, you've got all this funding and you still haven't made those uh, final decisions because I think that sort of takes on to my next question in terms of sort of getting Airtasker off the ground. You know, you've got your co-founder now, you've got that amazing idea. What was the journey for sort of financing Airtasker um, in, in the early days? Was it bootstrapped? Or were you getting angel investments? Uh, sort of walk me through that. Yeah, so I think um, maybe talking a little bit about like how funding, what the funding environment was like in Sydney, maybe, um, you know, nine years ago or almost 10 years ago now. Um, so it was very much more nascent than uh, it is right now. And I think, you know, it was really interesting because for us, it was, it was probably one of the harder funding journeys. Um, the reason for that is one, we were um, we're doing something completely brand new. You know, we weren't sort of like selling um, enterprise software, you know, based on a product that already existed. You know, we were, you know, creating, like we were selling a dream. Um, second of all, it's like marketplaces are sort of um, quite akin to like infrastructure businesses. You know, it's kind of similar to telcos or road networks is, you actually have to invest a lot upfront for a very little initial return. Um, and, you know, the dream that you're trying to do is like build it out to, to the scale. It can actually pay for itself and stuff, but almost certainly marketplaces aren't going to do that day one because it just costs a lot more than, you know, that one buyer and that one seller meeting is not going to be enough to pay for the whole uh, thing. And then I, th I think thirdly, um, being based in Australia, um, and actually serving like a local Australian customer network 
um, that was also a real challenge um, because the, the just maturity in the Australian market was not there compared to, um, you know, say the US, well, really just the US back in, in, in 20, um, 2011. Um, so um, all of those things made the journey pretty challenging. Um, the way that we uh, went about doing that is, uh, first of all, um, we had to show that we were serious. So, um, you know, Jono and I both put in um, some initial capital um, early on to, you know, really demonstrate to people, hey, we're prepared to put our own money uh, behind this. And, you know, you know, I think about uh, that, you know, those were low five-digit numbers. <laughs> um, so they were kind of like tens of thousands of, of dollars, um, low tens of thousands of dollars, if I remember correctly. And... Um, but that was really just to show, hey, we're, we're actually really serious about this. We're going we're gonna to go and do it. Um, and so that's what we started with. Um, and we raised a small round from the founders of Amazim. Uh, so that was the startup that we were building before uh, Airtasker. So that was really, um, it was really good to be able to, um, you know, have that, that network um, opportunity. Um, and then I guess the second thing we did, and that, that was enough to like build, um, build the app build the marketplace platform and get out to market, which for a marketplace, I would say that's probably upfront, probably the smaller part of what you need to pay for. Because actually when you're trying to build out like a, any kind of network, you're really trying to figure out like, how do you get all the people onto the network? So the software is obviously important and can be expensive, but it's probably half the equation or so. So um, we then, um, before we, um, Shortly after we, you know, launched the um, the, the platform, we, we raised another round, about a million and a half uh, Australian dollars, and um, that was enough to keep us going for about eighteen months. But I must say that when you look at how quickly you can ramp up a burn rate, like with a team of seven or eight people and a few tens of thousands of dollars a, a month in um, in in Google and Facebook ads, it doesn't actually go very far at all. And I remember, you know, in month three um we had a burn rate in one month because of the way that the the um you know the bills had come in it's like 130 grand in one month and we had you know a total of 1.5 mil in the bank and so you just stare at this going like oh my god we are we're stuffed um and so you know from there it was really just um you know for a couple of years it was sort of running raised to another and just sort of trying to get enough traction on the board to just survive until um, we were able to um, to go on that journey. And um, so that was probably the next sort of six years of my life, seven years of my life, with just running from uh, for one round to, to the next. I think a lot of people underestimate how difficult fundraising is. And, a lot, and, and not only how difficult it is, but one of the primary job roles or job descriptions of a CEO is not really running the company, it's fundraising. Uh, that's a big chunk of it at the initial stages of a company you know when you when you are fundraising especially in Australia as, as tough as it was back then what gave you hope how, how did you know that you know you were onto something that I don't I, I know that this sucks I don't like fundraising but I know that we're getting there slowly but surely what kept you going in the right direction well I would say a couple of things so the first thing is and and I say this with a little bit of humor but like um, but it's actually kind of you know funny not funny a little bit of naivety is probably quite healthy like I think that like if you really thought things through probabilistically and based on all the evidence and all that kind of thing you wouldn't start 97 percent of yeah you know, most 97 percent of companies probably would not be started because like um, you know, probabilistically, it's going to be bloody hard. It's probably not going to be worth your time and effort, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, if you, uh, if you manage to, to do something, you know, can uh, provide good returns. But generally speaking, it's, it's, a, it's a hard road. So I think the healthy bit of naivety is important to get started, to break the, that, um, to break the, um, the, the wheel spinning type and get some traction and just go. I think the second thing for us was like, um, you know, we really had a feeling that once we raised money from people, we really owed it to them to run every opportunity to the ground. Um, so we, we kind of felt like, you know, thankfully, I think that we had great investors who never put pressure on us and actually always said, you know, 
I put, when I invest in you guys, I put the money in the bottom drawer, you know, I put the share certificate in the bottom drawer and, you know, I hope that you give me a call back, you know, and it gives time. Um, so you, you, we never really had like, you know, difficult investors who gave us pressure in that sense. But I think we definitely applied the pressure to ourselves, which was just like, we're not going to, like, if we run out of money, sure, we run out of money, but we're going to give this everything we got until we, 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 we've, um, you know, we've run everything to ground. And so I think um, that's what really, I think was actually quite um, helpful in keeping us going because actually I think that, you know, if we'd had the opportunity, if, if we'd just self-funded and it was just our money and, you know, we had plenty of money and, and could have let it go, I'm sure that sometime between year one and year six, we would have said, is this all worth it? I don't think this is, this is too hard, you know, like, and, um, and we might've opted out, but I think, um, so I think that was one healthy part of it, you know, because it is it is really, really tough. Um, and I'd say like social networks, social networks are probably even harder. But if I kind of have a look at like that spectrum from, um, you know, uh, social network where you've got to build for years probably um, and your odds are very low, but if you make it, you break out. And then you look at like SaaS on the other end where actually you can probably like ship a product and start making money straight away and meaningful money marketplaces are quite close to like the social network end of things. You know, we would invest like, you know, millions of dollars into building a platform to generate hundreds or, or, or thousands of dollars in revenues um, and have to do that for quite some years and, and watch that slowly tick up before, you know, actually became a sustainable business. Yeah. I, I think you described the idea of like, you know, using other people's money as a good forcing function because it's like a fiduciary responsibility and especially if people give you their money then you know you have a a, a duty to to say okay you, you've trusted me with your money and now I have to do something with it and and it's on the converse of what you said that you know if you were to use your own money it's like oh it's my money I like I'm happy to lose it and all that stuff so you don't have that incentive I suppose Whereas now you're accountable and you have, you know, you have money behind you that doesn't belong to you. And now you've got to do something with it, which is really interesting. And it's a real mindset change as well. And I think um, a lot of the audience will appreciate that, you know, it's extremely mindset driven being a CEO and especially a very, uh, a CEO of a very young company and sort of just believing in the idea and, you know, just working as hard as you can and exploiting, exploiting every opportunity that you can to do uh, whatever you need to. And I think a lot of that is underestimated in, in a lot of respects. And I think for a lot of the companies out there, um, one of the challenges they have um, is really trying to sort of go to market and, I want to understand where with Airtasker, obviously you had this amazing idea, you had, you know, more or less product market fit, but product market fit can only go, you get you so far. So, but describe to me when you decided to launch the product to the public, you know, obviously you were doing a lot of user testing and, and what have you, but did your go-to-market strategy, was it fixed? Did it change over time? How did you sort of evaluate your, your GTM model um, you know, right from the outset and up until basically this year? Is it changing or do you always, is it, is it more or less fixed now? Well, I think this is a really, this is like, we could talk for hours on this topic. I think that um, one of the, you know, obvious but not obvious things about, um, you know, anything that's sort of like user-generated content or like a marketplace or like a platform type business is that the customer experience is you know obviously driven by the product but the product is not just the software that you're building and it's that's just the interface that you're you're dealing with but the product is actually the marketplace and so we describe that at airtasker as um, the marketplace is made up of the software and you know we're using that word in jest but the software the code that we write plus the liquidity in the actual marketplace what that means is that you know, unlike say a SaaS product where you might um, create the software and then go to market with that piece of software, 
um, with the, the product that you're building in a marketplace is you actually go to market with half a product because you're only going out with the software bit, but you have no actual users on the platform. And that's why I think that um, when you're, um, when you're um, uh, dealing with marketplaces is actually, you kind of have to, the, the big difference is that the product is literally evolving over time. And so you don't really go to market per se. It's almost like you go to get some liquidity so that you can actually have a product so that you can eventually go to market, you know, if you had to make that analogy. And so one of the really hard things is, again, why what, what makes it difficult is that you, you need to have some quite high conviction in what you're doing. Like, so you build the marketplace platform, you then go to market and you've got to um, then build the rest of the product uh, over time um, by, by, by doing marketing and, and, and building up that liquidity. And I think um, as much as it would be awesome if you sort of just went to market with a piece of software that was so strong that it just built up its own liquidity, I think that's probably not the case in most um, marketplaces. Um, and so you're constantly looking for that way. It's like, how do you build in those growth loops and how do you do marketing that's like so efficient that you can actually survive that period as you're building out the liquidity? Um, and so we spent the first sort of six, seven years just trying a whole bunch of different things, you know? Um, and the I think the, the answer, which is probably disappointing for most people, is like there is no one like, oh, we did this one thing and then just built this flywheel and, and it just took off. Um, it was more like we tried a whole bunch of things. Some of them were complete fails. Some of them were like mediocre fails. Some of them were like mediocre wins. And occasionally you had some step change wins. Um, but they weren't necessarily things that were always repeatable. You know, even when you had some of these wins, it wasn't kind of like, oh, okay, cool. So we did that. Let's just do that again and do it again. It was more kind of like, great. So we've tapped that. Now what's next? Um, so I think it's just like constant iteration and experimentation and, and, um, and getting used to things um, not working um, and then iterating on them. Yeah, I think that's a valuable lesson to everyone that's sort of listening and sort of gives them an idea that there's no recipe, I suppose. It's sort of like just trial and error because every model is different. Every marketplace is different. You know, what what might apply to Teotasca might not necessarily apply to Airbnb, for example. So I think it's really just a, you know, you just sort of go got to go in, maybe brute force it a little bit and and then optimize thereafter. Uh, but once you sort of narrow down and you've got the the crosshairs in range of where you want to aim, and then that's I guess that's where you sort of double down and triple down. But it's really just scanning the market, doing whatever you need to, and and sort of trying to identify what is gravitating towards people and what is not. And uh, again, unfortunately, part of that is is sort of trial and error. I want to um, sort of shift gears a little bit here and just talk about. So sort of go back to the mental aspect of of uh, of it of what you guys are up to because and then what sort of running a company is all about because I think one of the reasons why I like doing this sort of stuff is sort of reaching out to people and and getting to understand how they think and for me you know as we spoke about before mindset you know what is how important is sort of you know mindset when it comes to being a CEO and not just sort of being the CEO, I guess maybe on the leadership team, but I guess it applies more specifically to the CEO because they're making all the decisions. You know, if you're at the helm of an entire company that's that's growing or that isn't growing, you know, how do you compose yourself on a day-to-day basis? You know, what's do you have a routine? You know, how do you make sure that you're living more or less a balanced life, but making sure that you're not overly stressed when you're sort of starting to build your company. Yeah, so I think, um, look, I definitely don't have all the answers uh, to that uh, to that question, but I'd say um, structure is is a, a good place to start, I think, trying to have some, um, so for me personally, even when uh, we were starting a task, obviously we could have just worked from home you know, um, you know, everything that we do is effectively uh, remote, etc. But we prioritize like having an office so that it was like, go into work, 830 in the morning, you know, work, 
you know, go home at seven o'clock or whatever we were signing off on at that time. And, you know, the aim there, and it's not always that we, we were able to follow through with this, but the aim there is like, you know, you come to work, you sprint, you do your time, and then you go home and you do something else. Um, and to just create a bit of like boundary and a bit of um, structure. I must say the first two years, that's probably a bit fruitless. Like you're just going to end up, you know, like even when you're at home trying to relax, the least relaxing thing that you can do is know that there's a fire burning somewhere that needs to be put out and try to relax. Like I, I don't actually think that that's a great, <laughs> a great way uh, to relax. So um, that didn't uh, work all the time. But I do think like creating some structure is good. Um, I also, um, like my thing is like, I just go for a jog uh, in the morning and sort of like do some exercise, you know, and, you know, it's only a couple of Ks. Like I don't, you know, um, do a huge workout or anything, but it's good to just sort of set some, you know, um, structure in the way that, um, uh, the way that we uh, do things. So that's one thing I would say to like, you know, um, get into a good uh, mindset. I think the second thing is, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about like trusted relationships and like being able to have a team around you that you do trust. And I think what that comes down to is really like making sure things are said that need to be said. And I do not think this is something that I necessarily did well. Like, you know, when I think it's just something that you kind of learn with experience over time, um, or at least for me, I had to learn it over time. And that was like, um, you know, to nip things in the bud. Like when you see something that isn't, you know, isn't um, uh, the way that you feel that it should be, say something about it. You know, just go, hey, I saw that thing. You know, I wasn't that comfortable with it. Can we talk about this? Let's talk it out. And then align, you know, and it doesn't mean that you agree with everything that the other person says, but you get aligned on, okay, cool. Well, what do we agree we're going to do next? You know, like, are you going to keep doing that thing? And I've just got to get used to it. Or are you going? Are you going to change? Or like, what are we doing next? Um, but I think really having those relationships where you can have those convos is really um, important. And it also, I think that's like at least for me, like one of the big reasons for anxiety or like you know getting stressed about stuff is people matters like that. When you can like, oh, is that person annoyed with me? Or are they going to quit? Or you know, one of those things. And I think it's better these days. You know, just be like, hey you annoyed with me or you're going to quit? Like, why are you working at Airtasker? You know, like just have those open conversations and, and try not to feel, um, not to feel awkward about them. And, and um, one of the ways that we've, um, that I've sort of addressed that at Airtasker is like just calling it out when it's awkward, you know, just going out, Hey, this is going to be awkward, but I'm going to ask you this question anyway, <laughs> you know, um, and, and to be able to have those conversations, I think is, um, is really powerful because the worst thing I think you can do is, not have them and then then it's going to turn into a cluster um, later down the line yeah that's that's super interesting and i i like the way you you approach things and i guess it's not for every every person but i i want to appreciate how you sort of tackle those sort of situations because i know that a lot of the workplaces here or wherever you are there's a lot of politics there's a lot of uh, taboos and I think it's you know it's fine that's fine I, I totally get that but I think the the workplace needs to be more transparent and more open especially if you're growing at such a you know a monumental speed you know you don't want to you don't want to make sure that people are left behind or or to have you and people are, are actually um, truthful about why they want to be working there and if you approach the people, you know, obviously with the right jest and making sure that they feel comfortable, um, I think those are the sort of key key uh, marks of a good leadership quality. Because for me, you know, speaking to a lot of friends, you know, sometimes they feel really uncomfortable at work. They don't want to speak about anything, and their productivity goes down. And so, sort of leading that team is uh is is really crucial uh, do you feel like that is something that more CEOs should aspire towards or should again is it is it much like you know going to market everyone has their own sort of recipe of doing things um is is there if you were to sort of advise up-and-coming uh entrepreneurs you know to sort of be the best self but also trying to be a good human being 
how would you sort of phrase that? Yeah, well, I'd say that those, the sort of like be a good person and be a good CEO, um, usually they're pretty similar. Like as in, I, I don't think there's much, massive like misalignment uh, between those two things. And I think what it comes down to is like priorities and, um, and, um, and being transparent with how you're stack ranking stuff. Like, I think that like one of the, um, you know, some, you talk about some of the taboos and stuff that, that exist in, um, you know, sort of like the startup landscape. I think like it's worthwhile just calling out some of those taboos and being more transparent about them. So for example, like one, one taboo I think is like, um, we should like, you know, money is not important. You know, like there's a bit of like a thing of like, oh, um, yeah, if you if you just do something that's really good, build a great product, um, the, the money will just sort itself out. And I think that that's like massively bookending. I think that like um, absolutely you want to build a great product, get users to love your product, and that is incredibly important. But to say that, say, money is not important is not true. Like you do not, like you can't pay yourself, like you need to be able to pay your salaries and be able to like do stuff. And, and so I think that like, you know, um, often you'll uh, hear people say things like, oh, but you're only doing that just for money. It's like, what, like, why is that? Why would that be a bad thing? Like, we absolutely do need to make money. Like, that is how we pay all of our salaries and people pay for the food that they put on the, the table. So, like, um, I think just, like, being clear about those priorities. And so it's not about, like, who's a better human. You know, somebody might say, hey, we should make all our products, like, 99% cheaper so that more people can get access to them. It's like, yeah, but that wouldn't be balancing against keeping enough revenue to be able to employ people, to be able to build a great product, to be able to keep reinvesting into that thing to make it even better. And so I think that's like one example uh, where, you know, it might feel like one person is like compromising being a good human for being a good CEO. But I think actually, if you want to do both of those things well, it's just about being really frank and honest about like what are the priorities in this company. And so, um, you know, it might be a case where you need to make redundancies and that is the best thing. Um, that's probably going to be the best thing. Like, you know, if, if um, a situation where that's the case, um, it could be it's the best thing for your users, for those people, for the company, et cetera, is to make redundancies. And it might come out on the surface that it, it feels like, oh, you know, you're, you're not prioritizing people. Um, you know, you're prioritizing making cash or something like that. But you've got to think about like, well, what's the impact on your shareholders? What's the impact on your users? What's the impact on having people in the organization when they know that they're not performing and they're not um, they're not actually adding value? Like, is that a good thing to to do that to keep someone around when they're when they're doing that? So, I think um, you know, if to summarize that up, I don't think uh, being a good CEO and being a good human are two are two different aspirations. I think they're pretty much the same. Yeah, that's. I think there would be probably, you know, maybe a few people out there who would think otherwise, but I think for the most part, there is definitely an agreement there. And, you know, you hear about your Steve Jobs and your Elon Musks and all that stuff, and, you know, behind closed doors, they're just, you know, extremely savage and rude people that just wants to grow their company at, at everyone's expense. But at the same time, you know, you definitely have a point is that, you know, you, you're trying to make sure that you're not hurting anyone's feeling like it's not personal at the end of the day. It's like, how do I make the business successful so that everyone can be successful, whether it be the shareholders, the employees, the customers, the users. So it's not about one particular individual um, per se. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I think that like where it becomes like not cool is if you're not transparent about those kinds of things and you're not honest about those kinds of things. Like, I think that like, you know, if you think about someone like, um, like uh, Elon Musk and, you know, I, I've never met Elon Musk. I have no idea what his motivations are hundred percent, but you know, he's probably, you know, it's possible there that he's sort of like, look, there's, there's different people, right? There's people who want to, um, there's the human race who wants to like colonize Mars. And then there's an employee that I have, you know, um, who's not performing well, which one am I going to do? Am I going to make sure that that um, person who's not performing well, you know, still, you know, continues to earn good money and, you know, has their job? 
or am I going to prioritize getting, you know, to colonize Mars as quickly as I can? And in his head, he's probably going like, I think it's a very easy trade-off. I'm going to prioritize the people who want to get to Mars versus the person who's not performing in my, my company. And yes, it's going to hurt this person for a day, um, but it's going to help, you know, I don't know, a billion people move to Mars in, in, in the future. And so I think that like, again, it just comes down to like being honest and transparent, I think, with like what your goals and your priorities are. And, you know, I think if you actually, if you can do that, then it's actually like, and I've seen this happen, like in, um, in various situations, it's like that employee actually goes, oh yeah, you're right. I'm not the best person to help us get to Mars. You know, I don't, I don't have a role here and I shouldn't be here. I'm going to go do something else where I can, you know, make the most out of my skills that I do have. Um, but yeah, again, I think it's all about just honesty and, and transparency and, and, and knowing what's important. 100%, 100%. I want to uh, fast forward a little bit with Airtasker and, and sort of jump to the the past few years. I think you guys have been kicking goals and doing super well. And I think a lot of people want to sort of learn about, you know, the growth trajectory that you guys have been taking, especially with IPO. So first off, congratulations. And secondly, you know, what was the impetus behind the IPO? I think right now, especially in the U.S., whether it be IPOs, going through SPACs, it is gangbusters. You know, everyone wants to sort of go public or get acquired and sort of have an, a nice exit. But I want to, maybe you can sort of educate everyone about what was the sort of process for Airtaster going IPO? Is it different to the way it works in Australia compared to sort of the, the US? Um, maybe sort of explain how, how all of that unfolded. Yes, I don't have great visibility on how it works um, in the in the US because you know this is the first time I've ever done this, and you know I've only done it once and in Australia. Um, I think that it's like broadly pretty similar. Um, it's a pretty similar um, a process. Um, we um, we did a traditional IPO in that sense, uh, rather than like um, a SPAC, which in Australia, um, you know, they do have things like reverse takeovers and things like that, where you um, you know, you get acquired by a shell that um, that already exists on the on the public markets and things like that. And so, all of those <coughs> mechanisms do exist uh, in Australia as well as as the uh, US. Um, in terms of like the motivations for um, being a public company, I think there were like two main motivations for us. One was um, uh, the primary one was all about getting like rapid access to agile capital. And as I mentioned to you, I think raising um, at larger rounds in Australia is something that's pretty challenging, I would say. Um, and um, doing it when you have a company which is like geographically um, targeted, i.e. for Airtask, we have Australian customers um, forming the vast majority of our revenue. And then we've now launched into the UK and the US. So we have customers there too. Uh, but I think that is very hard for, for example, US investors to get their head around. Like, why would I go and invest in a company which is primarily generating revenue in Australia where I don't quite understand all the dynamics of that? I don't know, like maybe in Australia, there are some quirks which will make this work in Australia and it won't work in the US. They don't know that and I empathize with that. Um, so um, being a public company gave us um, access to capital, but also access to being able to do it in a much more agile way. So one of the ways I think you can think about being a public company is that you do a lot of effort up front to become public. So you go through all the regulatory things, you have to do audits, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But once you've actually done that hard work, raising capital is much easier because everyone knows you've done all that work and everything that you do is transparent and open. And the, of course the shares are liquid. And so for example, we, we raised around um, of over $20 million, we did that in a day of red shows. Like basically to say, hey, investors, like we've got this opportunity. Do we want to put in money? Like, yeah, cool, put in, put in some money in and go. Whereas if you think about like raising that sort of uh, money from like a venture uh, fund, you know, um, at least my experience was, you know, that's probably like eight to 16 weeks out of the business just raising money, like doing nothing else, but well, not nothing else, but really focused on, on raising. So I think access, uh, um, agile um, capital access was one point. The other point was giving our taskers and our employees an opportunity to own a liquid part of Airtasker. 
Um, but I think that was really um, quite powerful. It's hot, it's powerful. It's like a hiring incentive, you know, to be able to say, hey, when we actually give you equity at Airtasker, that's actually something that you can, you know, sell to go and, you know, um, uh, uh, fund lifestyle or, or, you know, pursue your dreams or whatever. That's quite different to, <clears throat> hey, you're, we're raising private, you're getting private equity in shares and, you know, it might be seven years until maybe we make an exit. Um, so I think being able to do that for our taskers and our employees was was the other really awesome part of it. Yeah, that's an interesting take. And I think a lot of people will be interested to find that out because everyone thinks about going public as, oh, I'm just going to go public. I'm going to have a massive valuation and then I'm going to start to basically tap out and start shelling my shares and then sort of cash, get all the cash. But it's really, um, you know, altruistic of you guys to sort of get capital very quickly so that you can use that capital to even grow even more. And that's sort of what you're doing now with the sort of the US stuff, right? Because you made an acquisition um, early this year of Zarly and you're planning to sort of take the US. Um, and I think you, you had a presence before, but now you're really doubling down on the US and really going for uh, market share. So what are your what are your what are your plans? What's the roadmap for the US? Yeah, so um, as as you mentioned, we are expanding internationally. So we've been live in the UK for a couple of years now. Uh, we've built up some real traction and you know doing millions of dollars of GMV in the UK, which is really exciting. Um, in the US, we have barely scratched any kind of surface. So um, actually, we started by acquiring a company uh, called Zali. Um, uh, which was founded back in 2011, and, and we acquired them uh, in May of 2021, so about 10 years into their journey, uh, led by an awesome founder called Bo Fitchback, um, who started the, started the company in, um, as an open marketplace, but converted it over time into a more curated marketplace. Um, so uh, working with the team at Zali, real marketplace experts, that's our um, jumping off point for, for the US. Um, so really excited about that. Uh, we're... Um, over the next um, a few weeks, we're going to be launching into Kansas City, Dallas, and um, and Miami. Um, so that's where we're um, we're starting. Um, and you know, the thing um, about what we're doing is like opening up each market one um, one at a time. Um, but um, you know, the the journey that we we have in the US, it's all ahead of us. We've um, we've been live there for a couple of weeks uh, now. So uh, you know, there's a lot more to come. Yeah, that's that's super exciting, and I like the sort of the the market activations you're doing, where it's sort of based on geography and making sure that you have like nice, good organic growth, and go from there, hop to another city, and I feel like that's a good strategy uh, for a lot of these uh, online marketplaces. But sort of just getting a good understanding of the market in general, and I'm sure that with different geographies, there's different talent pools. And everyone is offering different skill sets that they want to do. Is the 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 thesis of Airtask going to change in the US versus that of Australia, or effectively it's going to be nice a one uniform fabric, uh, basically a global fabric across the US, UK, and and, and Australia. So we have built the uh, invested pretty heavily into building out the platform as a. Um, um, as being configurable in all of the, the different countries um, that we operate in. So, you know, we've built out services for things like currencies, locations, uh, time zones, units of measurement, um, language, all of those kinds of things. And so um, what that enables us to do is really keep Airtask as like a singular um, product um, and then have configurations for each of the different uh, countries. And I think that's really powerful because um, it enables us to, really get that flywheel of like, as we keep investing into one singular core product, that product is gonna be shipped uh, globally. Uh, that said, um, with that layer of configuration that we have, uh, we can stage the market differently in different uh, locations. So for example, in Australia, when we started out, we started out with just one um, product, which was the open marketplace uh, product, posting a task, receiving offers, picking a tasker. Um, but now with listings, we can um, experiment with like, does it make sense to actually start with the other side of the marketplace in some uh, geographies? Start with taskers being able to package up services and offer them 
uh, through our um, discovery experience. So uh, we're going to be experimenting with all of those different types of uh, configurations. And I think that gives us like much more surface area um, to, to move faster and, um, and you know, accelerate growth in, in the US and the UK. Awesome. I think we're sort of hitting the mark here, but I definitely want to close out maybe with uh, a few more questions, but more so, what is your advice for budding entrepreneurs? I think there's, especially in Australia, there's a lot of um, amazing companies coming through the works, a lot of great founders and really ambitious people. If they're scared about starting a company because they either don't have the money or they feel like they're going to be a failure um, to their friends and their family, you know, what's your, I mean, what, how, what would be the best advice that you would give to all of these entrepreneurs to sort of continue doing what they have to do to build and, and sort of not give up? Yeah, I think I would say um, it, it's good to, self, to surround yourself with other people uh, in the industry. I think, um, you know, my, my advice would probably be to start at a bigger organization and sort of work your way down. Because I think that um, in terms of like going out and starting your own company, it is incredibly ambiguous. And there's like just so many things that um, can, can work in different ways. So I think it's best, you know, start with... Um, start working the company, surround yourself with people who have done things before, learn from that experience, and then work your way down. Too good. That's uh, simple and uh, very effective. Tim, thank you so much. Um, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, uh, what is the sort of the best way, What any platforms, any social media uh, that they can reach, you know, reach you out to? Yeah, probably LinkedIn is, um, is where I'm at. So I'm Tim J. Fung uh, on LinkedIn, or you can just find me all right i'll put all of that stuff in the uh, description notes uh, at the bottom but uh thank you so much it was really amazing to chat to you and um, i'm hoping that the audience will get a lot out of our conversation barry thanks so much man no problem thank you